Well, I have the privilege this morning of opening up God's Word. If you would please turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. It was the last decade of the first century. The aged apostle was the last of Jesus' closest followers during his earthly ministry. The beloved disciple was a prolific author. Writing to his children in the faith, he loved it when he heard that they were walking, following after Christ. And yet, at other times, concerned when they were confronted with false teachers and enemies of the gospel. It was one of these latter situations that he pens the letter we call 1 John. Our scripture reading this morning tells us clearly why John was writing this letter under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. The text says, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life life. John tells us very clearly there's two kinds of people in this world. Not Cubs fans or Sox fans, Bears fans or Packer fans, Diet Coke drinkers or Diet Pepsi drinkers, or you come up with whatever distinctions you have. It's not talking about ethnic groups or economic groups or other kinds of distinctions. He says there are either people who, are, who belong to Christ and they have spiritual life, eternal life, or there are those who don't have Christ, and they are lost and under judgment. He paints that so clearly. And he says, the reason I'm writing is to that group that belong to Christ. That's verse 13. I write these things to you, excuse me, get the right verse here. Write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so why? That you may know that you have eternal life. John, as the Spirit is, 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 is working through him to write God's truth down, says, I want you to know. Not just think uh, maybe, have a half-hearted, half-hearted assurance. He says, I want you to know. I want you to know that you have eternal life. That's an amazing thing we read there. Because we have to admit at times we don't always feel that way. And that's what we're looking at this morning is, what does this mean? Why, why is God saying that? Is it possible to have assurance? Uh, what has God done so that we can have that very true thing? Um, John wants them, and by extension us today, to know that they may possess here and now a present certainty of the life they have received in Christ. They had been unsettled by the false teachers and become unsure of their spiritual state. And the apostle's pur purpose in writing is to establish their assurance. Uh, Dr. Christopher Bass uh, writes, No other book of the New Testament speaks of the believer's confidence and assurance of salvation as frequently and as explicitly as the epistle of 1 John. For the predominant theme of the entire Christian letter is Christian certainty. 
So our goal this morning, and I hope you have an outline in front of you, I need to, I guess it should have a disclaimer. I talked to someone this morning between services, and he says, you know, I was looking at the outline, and, you know, we get down to that, that uh, whatever, the last point on, on the one side, and it's like, boy, we're going to get done early. This is great. And all of a sudden, you kept going, and oh, surprise, there's points on the backside. There's only, what, 18 or 20? We should have no problem getting out in time today. All right. But we're going to begin asking ourselves a question. Is it possible to have assurance? What does that mean? We're going to look at some of the sources of assurance that God has given us laid out in the New Testament. And then we'll finish it looking at how we can strive for assurance and the benefits of living in it. Our first point then, the purpose of 1 John, is assurance even possible for the Christian? Those who belong to Christ have that eternal life. Maybe you've seen it in others. The doubts, the struggling. For some, even it seems like the collapsing of their faith. And maybe it's not just what we've seen in others. I'm sure all of us, if we were honest, there's been times where there has been some level of doubt, some question, some wondering. You know, we came to saving faith in Christ, whenever that was, but boy, during different situations in life and things going on, and we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit of what might bring some of these doubts, we just wonder. We just wonder. We don't feel we have that full assurance. Can we really know that we are born again and belong securely in Christ? Is assurance of salvation possible? Is it presumptuous to say, I know I have eternal life? And how does that square with what John, what we just read there in John chapter 5? It's possible, Donald Whitney writes, even normal for the Christian to experience assurance of salvation. It's possible, even normal, for us as Christians to experience this assurance of our salvation. Why? As Robert Yarbrough writes in his commentary on the letter, John can commend a full assurance of eternal life for his readers because the full requirements of salvation were met by Christ. We can have full assurance of our salvation because Christ has met the full requirements that were needed. Isn't that amazing? Christ has done all that we need for eternal life. Let's look at just two other quick places in 1 John uh, to, to, to support that that's what John is really looking at. Go back to chapter 2 for a moment. We're going to be looking at a number of places in the letter of 1 John. And then I will have you also turn to one other passage uh, of Scripture besides referencing some other places throughout our time here this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to some key words that, that are similar to what we read there in chapter 5. He says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. You know him. Verse 14, I write to you dear children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. There again, that language, to be able to know, to have confidence, to be certain. Let's go down to chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. John doesn't, doesn't waver on what he's saying there. He says we are children of God. That is who we are. I agree with Greg Gilbert. He's got an excellent book called Assured. And he says this. I said, he says, I think that the Bible teaches that assurance is the birthright 
in, is the birthright inheritance of every Christian and is even more inherent to the nature of saving faith. Let me just say that again. I think that the Bible teaches that assurance, knowing we have God's salvation, that we belong to him, is the birthright inheritance of every Christian and is even inherent to the nature of saving faith. The apostle wants all true believers to know with certainty that they have eternal life. So let's look now at some sources of assurance, some things that God has laid out for us in Scripture that form the basis and evidence that we can have this confidence that we belong to Christ. Uh, the first of these sources is called the driving sources, the driving sources of assurance. And by that, I don't mean driving the car type of thing, although you can, it, it almost can kind of fit if you think of an analogy that way. But the dynamic, the major type of source that he has given us is two things, if you want to write these down. First, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And second, it's the promises of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises of God are the driving sources, the dynamic, the major, the basis, the foundation of our assurance. And these come from God himself. That first driving source, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the work that he accomplished through his death and burial and resurrection and ascension for all of us, the great plan of salvation. Back in chapter 2 of 1 John, the very first verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two interesting things he says there about Jesus. He says, first, we have an advocate, a representative, someone, someone representing us, someone on our, speaking up on our behalf. And he makes it clear in this letter, he's writing to believers, he says, you know what, uh, we, you know, he says, I'm writing you, I don't want you to sin, but if anyone sins, and John would be the one to say, yeah, you know what, we do sin still as believers, but the good thing is we have an advocate from the Father, Jesus Christ. If you think of some of the imagery in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Christ, when he was done, all that he accomplished for our salvation, went up to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. He is our great high priest. He's making sure that what he accomplished will always be true, will always have that forgiveness of sins, will always belong to him. He will accomplish all that he wanted to in saving us. But it also says he is the atoning sacrifice. Or some translations may have the word propitiation. Okay? He gave his life for us. The Bible says that when Christ was on the cross, God made him to be sin for us. He took your sin and my sin and put it on Christ. Christ paid the penalty that we deserved to pay. He became the atoning sacrifice. The idea of the word of propitiation is a satisfaction. We have God, as we know in Scripture, as a holy and righteous God. He can't tolerate sin. He can't just ignore it. He can't let it into heaven. Someone that is lost in sin can't have a relationship with God. All we deserve is judgment. And what Christ did in giving his life, bearing our sin, being the perfect sacrifice, he satisfied those holy and righteous demands. Everything that stood against us, Jesus satisfied that. He satisfied the wrath of God. So he is our atoning sacrifice. He is our propitiation. 
two other verses just to touch on a little bit of what all Christ did for us. And there's so many more you could look at. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Redemption. He bought us with the price of his own life to rescue us from the slave market of sin. We have that forgiveness of sins, that, that um, uh, declaration doesn't stand against us anymore. 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save sinners. The second driving source, the promises of God. Now promises are only as good as the person making them, Right? Sometimes your athletes say, hey, I promise we're going to have a winning record this year. Hmm. Uh, and with all apologies to uh, 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 telemarketers and, and salespeople, uh, I think we've all had experiences where you hear some, oh, if you just buy, you, you don't even know how much you're missing this. If you just give me, you know, three payments of this or that, you're going to have something that you're going to last you forever. And you get that thing, and it barely lasts a day or two, right? I could make promises to you. I could say, oh, I'll be glad to do this and do that for you. And I may have every intention, and I would try to maybe work as hard as I could to keep that, but I could still fall short, right? I don't have uh, an unlimited bank account. I don't have great strength. I don't have all the wisdom of the world and many other things. So promises are only as good as those who make him. God makes promises to us, doesn't he? He makes exceedingly great and precious promises. Does God have the resources? Does God have the ability to keep his promises? Is he limited in his power? Is he limited in his wisdom? Is he limited in any other way that he cannot fulfill what he wants to fulfill? And of course, the answer is no. He can, he can and he will keep every promise. We know that God is truth. It's impossible for him to lie. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Paul would write in 1 Timothy 1.12, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him to that day. Paul, the one who was the blasphemer, he said of himself, who persecuted, he thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting these followers of this Jesus until he was confronted with Christ on the road to Emmaus, or excuse me, on to somewhere, right? You remember, all right, good, good answer there, head of the class. It's one of those things, you just, okay, where'd that go, that word? Um, and he was changed. And he says, now I know, even though I was a blasphemer, all, did all these things, I know, I'm convinced, God is going to be able to guard what I've entrusted to him. That was Paul's own life until that day, the day of Christ. Or Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God has perfect love and unchanging mercy he will not receive and accept you one day and reject you tomorrow. 
If someone comes to uh, God on his terms, comes through turning to God in repentance and acknowledging they're the sinner that Christ died for, that they have no other hope, and they put their faith and trust in Christ for their basis of eternal life, God says, I'm never going to turn anyone away who comes to me on my terms. And he's not, you might look back and say, boy, you know, I, 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 I came to faith in Christ, you know, whatever that was, however many weeks or months or years ago. And just because God accepts you then, it's not all of a sudden, guess what? You know, Tim, I don't know if I want to keep you anymore. God says, no, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And so the driving sources of our assurance is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises of God. But there's a second kind of source. It's a supernatural source. And this is the witness of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural spirit, uh, the source. His presence, the Spirit's presence in our life can bring a deep and profound sense of comfort, of security, of assurance. Let's look at 1 John 3, the last two verses of the chapter. 1 John 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know, there's that word again, this is how we know we have certainty that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Let's, let's look at this a little further. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. And keep your spot there in 1 John. But Romans chapter 8, incredible chapter about some amazing truths about us belonging to Christ, uh, that nothing can ever separate us from Christ, his love. And we see some very clear things here about the witness of the Spirit. Verse 1 just reminds us of the chapter, who who Paul is writing to here, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, all right? So that's who he's writing to in this section. Let's go down to verse number nine. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So in 1 John we see, John says, hey, if you, if you have Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have eternal life. Similar thing is, if you have the Holy Spirit through Christ, you have that eternal life. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. You don't have eternal life. They all go together. Verse 11. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Down to verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Do you see the connections there? If we're in Christ, if we have eternal life, we have the Spirit. The Spirit was, is given to us a number of things, but one is, interesting, it says, witnesses or testifies 
with our spirit that we belong to God. That's an incredible thing that the God, the third person of the Godhead takes up residence inside of us and testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's similar, Paul writes in Galatians 4, where he says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. You and I, if we belong to Christ, we have been brought into the closest imaginable relationship with God. We are beloved, accepted, welcomed as sons and daughters of the king. At conversion, the Holy Spirit seals our relationship with him. And this, what, one of the things that makes this a slightly different kind of source of assurance, that this is more of an experiential, if you will, and, but it's grounded in the truth. Ephesians 1 tells us, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so the spirit is given us. And one of the things, yes, he's going to be a witness to our spirit. We belong to him, but he's also a seal. And maybe you imagine, uh, maybe you've seen this in movies or TV shows, and you know some royal figure has this big parchment laid out, and he or she is signing it, and then they pour that hot wax on it, and then they go, right, stamp it with their seal. And it's like God does that with his spirit, and he stamps and he says, you're mine. You belong to me. And here's the promise right here. The seal of my Holy Spirit that you belong to me now because of Christ. It's an amazing thing. Greg Gibbler continues to go on. He says, the Spirit's coming into our life and beginning his work of testifying with our own spirits that we are a child of God happens the moment we bow the knee to Jesus and trust him for salvation. And the Spirit's presence and witness are guarantees of our future final salvation. That's incredible confidence that we have what God has promised in our statement of faith. And I'm sure all of you have been reading the statement of faith this week, right? Well, you don't have to show your hands. It's okay. I know you usually do, especially members, right? They're reading it all the time. Here it goes. This is what it says about the Holy Spirit. He also indwells, illuminates, he guides, he equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. And so we see the Spirit at work as he leads us, guides us into truth, develops that divine fruit, uh, as Galatians 5 talks about, gives us spiritual gifts for service. So there's a both uh, the work of the Spirit. There's that inward he testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But then there's also the outward, the demonstration as he's leading, as he's equipping, as he's developing the fruit that becomes evident. And that will tie in uh, a little bit later uh, as well. Important to note, though, that the spirit's witness in our lives is not at all, as always equally perceptible to every believer at every moment. Yet he's always there and bears witness that we are children of God. Yet his witness and working will be more obvious at certain times than others. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm going to give you two examples. One, if you look in the uh, book of Acts, we see after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the believers there. They were waiting for that as Christ had promised. And yet as the chapters go on, we see a number of times where it says the, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, throughout different chapters, they're doing different things. They're, they're preaching, they're helping. God's doing miracles through them, other things. But on different occasions, it says they were filled with the Spirit. And we see other things happening. Sometimes it's, it's speaking in tongues. And, and then there's, there's worship and praise. And they're having a boldness to, to testify about Christ. Uh, that fullness wasn't all the time. The Spirit was there all the time with them, but there were occasions where it was more perceptible. It was more obvious, not only to them, but to those around them. And I think I even feel in my own life at times, and I can't explain it. I, I, I think as in growing and as a believer and, and grateful for this promise of the Spirit and sensing that I belong to him, his testimony. But there's been times where I can't explain. I, I think he just, because he chose to, just used me for something. I know there's been times where uh, talking with someone, and I couldn't even tell you exactly all that I said, but it was like the Spirit just, you know, the words just coming out or praying for somebody or other things like that. And maybe you've experienced some of that too. Yes, it is subjective, to a point. It is occasional, and yet that's also part of the Spirit's witness in our lives. So we've seen the driving sources of assurance. We've seen the supernatural source of assurance, the Holy Spirit. We're going to pause for a moment. Our next point is is looking at, though, for a moment, the undermining of assurance. The undermining of assurance. We started out earlier on saying that it's possible, even normal, for a Christian to have assurance of their salvation. It is also possible, and maybe normal, for Christians to have occasional doubts about their salvation. They have doubts. Where it doesn't feel quite full, that assurance, for a number of reasons, as we'll touch on in a second. Doubt, it's important to remember, doubt is not the same as unbelief. Okay? Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt, for the Christian, it's like, yes, we're, we're struggling with this, but it's, the idea is like we're straining forward toward faith, but we're lacking something. It's similar to what we see in some of the Psalms of Lament as the writers are, are calling out and wondering what God is doing, and yet you see they're still calling out to God. They're, like, they're not sure, but they're, they're straining forward to that. And, and what, what might be um, needed is a reorienting back towards the truth or maybe a more thorough understanding of the truth that could speak to some of these doubts. With doubts, we can lose a sense of assurance. It's us. We feel that way. It doesn't change what God has said is true, but we feel maybe differently about that. These doubts can stem from a number of things that, are, that can vary uh, at times and in intensity in any of us as believers. First one to me that came to mind was unrepentant sin. We know as believers, Paul talked about Romans 7, how he struggles with sin. He goes, I know the right thing I want to do, and yet I still find myself doing this. And the issue is, what do we do as believers when we sin? You can have a whole sermon on that. One, we need to acknowledge it before God. Thank him that in Christ it has been paid for. But even as something Christ said, we, you know, what are the kind of the steps of, and the fruit of repentance with that? Do we want to stay stuck in that sin or are we going to avail ourselves of what God has for us to have that victory? Listen to what David says in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, except silent about his sin, my bones wasted away 
through the, my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover it up, my iniquity. Have you ever felt that at times as a believer? Kind of felt that God's hand at times may be lightly resting on your shoulder and then sometimes it's like <laughs> pushing down? The Spirit doing his work of conviction? He's doing that because he loves us. He's doing that because he knows, even as a believer, staying in sin, ignoring it, treating it lightly, all those things are not good. Not good for our spiritual well-being, for our spiritual health, for, for joy, for a lot of things that it could rob us of. So unrepentant sin is something that can lose a sense of salvation. Spiritual laziness. We get less frequent or careless in our spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer or of gathering together with other believers or letting our guard down in the pursuit of holiness. Satanic attacks. Jesus had said to Peter uh, just before he went to the cross, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fall, fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. And it's interesting that about three decades later, Peter writes in his first letter as a warning to believers he says, be, be sober, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Sometimes satanic attacks can be things that rob us of assurance. Even the pressures of trials and circumstances. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 that they were under great pressure. It seemed like almost too much to bear. They were at the point of death. Talk about pressure like that just really messes with our minds a little bit of what, okay, what's right here? What's truth? What's going on? It could rob us of some of our assurance. Or even someone like Elijah, if you remember the story in the Old Testament, and there was this great contest of the gods, if you will, so to speak, up on, on Mount Carmel. And you had Elijah on one side representing the God of Israel, the God of, of creation, the God of the Bible. And you had all these other hundreds of prophets of Baal, these false idols. And they, they had a contest to see who could make fire come down from heaven. And, and Elijah, of course, as we know, God was the only one who could did it. And so Elijah was, quote, on the winning side, the right side. But right after that, after having all that faith to stand up to the king and all these prophets and all the people, he hears a message from Queen Jezebel. says, listen, in a matter of days, you're going to be just like those prophets you just slaughtered, those false prophets you slaughtered. And he got scared, and he ran away. He ran for miles and miles and miles. And at the end of all his running, he was emotionally drained, physically drained, spiritually drained, to the point where he said two different times, I wish I just, I want to die. Sometimes the circumstances we find ourselves in can be so intense, it, 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 it puts pressure, if you will. It, it, it's like our assurance doesn't seem to us to be as strong because of all that is going on. Even for newer believers, sometimes newer in the faith, <clears throat> there come things and some, some of these trials will come. They have, if you want to say, a relatively limited knowledge of the Bible. They know enough of the truths to embrace Christ as Savior. And yet some different things happen. They say, well, why is this going on? And they don't have all the resources. They haven't learned all the promises yet and other things to bring to bear on that. Or all of a sudden they start seeing, it almost seems like a, a counterintuitive, but they start seeing more sin in their life. You know, they, they, they came to a point like all of us did at a certain, you know, that we were sinners. We deserve death. Christ died for us. I'm forgiven. 
as part of my salvation. But the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us, and what is one of the things he wants to do? He wants to start pointing out some other areas of sin, doesn't he? And all of a sudden, you're like, <clears throat> why? I thought I had these, you know, I, I, there were like five sins I thought I had here. Of course, there's a lot more, but and now I've got another five and another five. What is that? But it's the Spirit. That's always been there. But the Spirit is, 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 is making you aware of it. He's pointing that out. It's part of the spiritual growth. And so how do we deal sometimes? You know, for, the, for the, a newer believer, realizing that it might be the Spirit at work pointing out more sin you didn't even thought of before as you get more and more into God's Word. It's also vital, especially for a young, one, one younger in the faith, to have a spiritual mentor. Someone that's gone a bit farther down the path that can talk to you when those come up and say, but I don't get this. Why do, I, why do I see more sin in my life? And why is this going on? And I didn't think it would be so hard. They can share their experience. They can share more of God's word with you to try to answer some of those things. They can pray with you over those things. And for any of us, if there's unrepentant sin, maybe I need to, if I'm feeling like God's having his hand up, it's pressing on me in other circumstances, I need to be humble and say, God, would you look at my life? Check it out. See, is there any wicked way in me, something I need to deal with, that I'm harboring, I'm hanging on to, that I shouldn't? Maybe I need to renew spiritual habits. Maybe I need to renew and ask others to be praying for me. I'm dealing with some of those. All right, let's get to our last of our sources. This is the confirming source of, of uh, assurance. It's the fruit of obedience. Or you could put spiritual growth. It's a confirming source. When a person is born again, they pass from spiritual death to life. They are redeemed and reconciled. They're adopted into God's family. And so many other things that God does for us. So why do we need to talk about the fruits of obedience as a confirming source? Aren't we saved by grace through faith and that not of any of our works? Absolutely true, right? Praise God, salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. That's what God has promised. When confronted with the truths of the gospel, all we can do is come humbly to God with empty hands, nothing in them, can't offer God anything. I realize I'm spiritually lost and eternally condemned because of my sin. But Father, I turn to you, and I turn to your son, and I look at all that he did on the cross, and realizing it's my only hope, all I can do is embrace Christ by faith and put my trust in him for my salvation. I give up any pretense of being able to rescue myself, but trust Christ alone for my eternal destiny. And then it begins that we start to learn why God has saved us. And for us who have lived the Christian life longer, to keep reminding us of why he saved us. Yes, we've been saved from hell, praise God. And now we have a forever home with the Lord in the new heavens and earth. But there's much more. Eternal life is a forever relationship with the triune God. And the Father is committed to making us into the image of his dear Son. Later on in Romans 8, talked about that, and there's other places. You stop and think about it. It goes, really goes back to why God made people in the first place. Right, Adam and Eve? What does it talk about before they sinned? They walked with him. They had fellowship with him. They were, they were perfect. They reflected God in, 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 in as best as they could at that time. There was nothing imperfect there until they sinned. And so in salvation, God is recreating us. And again, his purpose is to have an uninterrupted 
relationship with him. So he starts now in this life after we're saved, and he's going to conclude it when we get to heaven. Here's first is uh, Titus 2. Paul tells us, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. All right? The grace of God that saves us through Christ and faith in him. It, that same grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That same grace that saved us is the same grace as we keep learning more about and experiencing it. It helps me through the Spirit to start saying more and more often no to sin and yes to right living, the things that pleases God. In John, 1 John, going back to there, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purifies themselves, just as he is pure. So as we've said, we... we the basis of our assurance is the gospel of Christ, the promises of God. We have the Spirit testifying with our spirit. And as we see why God has saved us, we don't know all that's going to happen to us, what it's going to be like fully experiencing it, but we know when Christ appears, we're going to be like him as much as we can. There's going to be a time, as much as any human being could ever be like Christ because of his salvation, that's going to be it when we see him face to face. But he's working in us now. And so all of us who have that hope purifies themselves. It's like, God, I want, you to start, I want you to start working that right now. That's what God is looking for in us. He says, "This, Tim, this is the desire I'd love to see you have. I want to start doing this now in you. I'll finish it when you get to heaven, but I want to start working on this right now. In salvation, Christ saved us immediately when we come to saving faith, from the penalty of sin. Okay, that judgment's removed. In this life, as we live the Christian life, he is saving us from the power of sin, helping us have victory over that. And once we get to be with him someday, he will save us from the very presence of sin itself. Isn't that something someday? I'm never going to have to worry about being proud or getting angry or, right, all of us could put in our lists of things, Right? And doesn't it, it bug you sometimes? Christian, I can't believe, oh, man. It just reminds us still the remnants of sin are there, and yet God is greater. Greater is the one in us than he that is in the world. When a believer understands grace and grows in that understanding, he or she desires the Lord to do the kind of work he wants in our lives. That is the normal Christian life. We don't do it in order to be saved, but we do it out of, because the Lord has saved us, out of love and gratitude for him. We want to please him and experience all that we have uh, as a child of God. Um, we think sometimes, we think of growth Think of physical growth. We think, you know, there's kids that are always, every year they go to the doctor, they keep getting bigger, right? And either we keep getting bigger or taller or we get bigger in other ways as we stop growing taller. But that's, that's another story, all right? But graphing out spiritual growth will not always look like a line that continually goes up. God is always at work. And at times there's, 
the ups and then there's the downs and there's the faster times and slower times and stagnation and other things that happen. And yet, God is still at work, okay? It's not a graph that just keeps going up, but God is at work. It's a lifelong process that he's going to do. But it's also, it's not a matter of how many acts of obedience, okay? We're talking about this as a confirming source, spiritual growth, fruits of the Spirit. It's not like God says, okay, if I need you to do 100,000 acts of obedience in your life, okay, go. Go ahead, give it a try, see what happens. It's not that. What it is, the right question to say is, or the right thing to look at, that our lives should be characterized by spiritual growth and obedience. That's the kind of life that pleases God. Uh, I came across an interesting thing looking at Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and he was talking about Saul in the Old Testament, who was king of Israel. And if you remember the story a little bit, Saul, as he starts out, God chooses him to be king. We see the Holy Spirit come upon Saul. There's times he's even prophesying. He gets the people together. They're unified. They're fighting battles. They're winning wars. And there's some really good things happening. But over a period of time, he starts to disobey God. And to a point where then God says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And we even see the Spirit leaves him. And Grudem says, interesting comment, it's simply hard to tell from the Old Testament whether Saul throughout his life was either an unregenerate man who had leadership qualities or a regenerate man who had poor understanding and a life that increasingly strayed from the Lord. Okay? The fruits of obedience, the spiritual growth, are a confirming source. They corroborate, they verify. They're not the driving sources or the foundation. That's the promises of God and the gospel of Christ. They're not the natural, supernatural source. That's the indwelling spirit. But built on the gospel and its promises and the work of the spirit, the spiritual growth will occur as we cooperate with God, as we listen to his word, as we allow him to do those things in our life. And so on that, it's an extra layer, if you will, of assurance. What's, what's helpful, when I am struggling with sin, the Spirit does convict. And I know there's been times where he's, he said to me, Tim, you know what? You're going through some of your Bible reading lately in prayer time. You just seem to kind of be going through the motions. You know, is that what you want? Does that honor me? And I'm thankful he does that. There's times he brings some, something specific to mind that, hey, you know, this is not right. You've, you've offended somebody. You know it, and you're not doing anything about it. And and hopefully I respond right away to do that. But here's the neat thing in this process of us in our spiritual growth where the body of Christ comes in together. Because I know I can also say that there's been times and I'm thankful now, I may not have been at that moment when they confronted me and told me, hey, Tim, you know what? We gotta talk. There's something going on here. This, what you did there is not right. And that hurt this. And that was a poor example of Christ. And I'm thankful that my wife has been one who has done that because she loves me. And there's been other people in this church who have come alongside and, again, point this out so that hopefully with the goal that I listen to the Spirit, take the right steps and let God help me back on, if you want to say, the the fruitful, growing Christian life. It's an incredible thing what God has done for us. And if, as a believer, you don't care, if you find yourself not caring about sin, it might be a sign that something's wrong. Maybe, as using Grudem's uh, suggestion there, maybe you are a regenerate person, but you have some poor understanding. 
Maybe you've let sin go on too long and you've kind of getting, you're, you're kind of stuck in its grip or you're straying further from the Lord. You still belong to him, but you're, you're kind of off the path that is the best kind of path for the believer to have. And so maybe it's time to take notice. So let's, let's wrap this up here, um, landing the plane. I saw at least three people here today that had <laughs> shirts on. We should have just had them stand up, and that means, hey, there's the next signal, okay? We've been talking about assurance for the believers. And it's possible even normal for us as believers to have the assurance of our salvation. Praise God he gives that to us. But it's also possible even normal for a non-Christian to have a false assurance. There may be some of you here today and what you feel is you, you think maybe you're right with God and what are the reasons? Well, I'm religious, I go to church, I give some money once in a while, I really try to live a good life, I, maybe I was even baptized, I mean I don't curse like I used to, I mean the list goes on. But where is the foundation? The foundation can only be Christ. In fact, Jesus, there's a haunting image in the Gospels where he says to some one day in the future, uh, they're going to come, they're like waiting to get to heaven, so to speak, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, well, why not, though? But we did this. They were, they were doing good things. They even did miracles. And he says, no, because why? They didn't have the foundation. They didn't come to God on his terms. They didn't acknowledge and realize their lostness of sin and that Christ was the only way of salvation. That might be what you need today. That's something I've been praying about that as God, not because of me, but as his word goes out, that it would do, the Spirit would do his convicting work. To bring it to that point, today can be the day of salvation for you. There's going to be some people up here afterwards, our prayer team, they would love to talk to you more about that, what God might be trying to stir in your own hearts. But for us as believers, the assurance that God wants to give us, he wants us to know that. How do we keep pursuing that? One, I think we keep pressing deeper into some of the truths of the gospel. We look deeper more and more of all the things that happen to us at our salvation, all that God has promised for us, all that he wants to do. And the more we do that, I believe, is one way that our assurance continues to grow. It also, when we have some of those doubts, if there is sin in our lives, if there is uh, great pressure, everything else, we, we take the time to pray. We take the time to examine. We ask for others to pray for us and see more and more of those things. And as we live in assurance, there's a greater confidence. We're not worried about, does God love me today or not? We're not worried about what's going on. We live with a boldness and a, and a joy and so many other things because we know, based on God's promises, of the assurance that is ours. And ultimately, God helps us to run the race better, to run it well for his honor and glory, and ultimately we have a delight-filled confidence that what's await us at the end is his strong embrace. This being lit by a renewed focus on and treasuring of God's promises in the gospel. God the Father through Christ has given us the gift of salvation and the joy of his assurance. Let's pray toward that end now. Father, thank you for these time to be in your word. Thank you for these great truths of scripture, your promises, for your warnings to us, for giving us your spirit, for giving us the body of Christ. Father, thank you that you want to work in us, that from the moment of conversion, you are working in us for our good and your glory. And Father, may we walk in obedience. May we do what we want our lives to please you in all that we do. Thank you for wanting to help us with that each and every day. We pray this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.